Um, someone reminded me that uh, I do the announcements all wrong. I'm supposed to ask if there are any first-time visitors with us. Um, anybody here for the first time? There we go. I hope that you really are welcome today, and I hope you don't just run off. Um, it'd be nice to, um, to, to meet you as well. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. We um, are going through an Advent series in Isaiah. It's going to take us through to Christmas Day. And um, I, I encourage you, please, just to keep your finger in Isaiah 11. Um, and while you're turning there, think back with me if you can. Um, this is going to be weird, <laughs> seeing myself on the screen there. Think back with me, if you can, about a decade or so ago to the month of January um, 2020. Anybody feel like it was a lifetime ago? <laughs> there was an event that happened in the beginning of the year that I remember people saying would be the newsworthy event of the year. Now it feels like just a distant memory because of COVID. But do you remember the, the bushfires that, that occurred in Australia? I was looking through pictures, uh, if you could show the pictures. I was looking through pictures this week of the aftermath of that fire. Now there's quite a bit of beauty to that picture, but you can see the, the devastation. Let's see the, the next one. Um, that, that is telling, isn't it? Sure. I don't know if you can see well there, um, but it's just the same thing as far as the eye can see. Just uh, burnt trees, as far as you can see. And this, um, maybe show the last one here as well. There's a before and after in, in one area. And those pictures um, resemble something that we see in the book of Isaiah, a picture that Isaiah paints through his prophecy, a picture of disaster that is to come for the people of God. And it's just around the corner. If you remember last week, we were in Isaiah chapter 6, and we looked at the call of Isaiah. And he had an unenviable task. He was told to go and preach to people who would not listen. They would not listen to his word. In fact, they would only be hardened by his preaching, hardened until judgment would come. And judgment, we know, came in the form of exile. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were conquered by the, the kingdom of Assyria taken off into exile, and really, that was the end of, of that kingdom. Though Judah, the southern kingdom, survived Assyria, the Assyrian threat, they did not learn the lesson of repentance that they should have. And so they were conquered later by Babylon, also sent off into exile, and God's judgment was complete. And so in Isaiah chapter 10, just prior to our chapter today, we see Assyria boasting in its power. In verse 13, the king is saying, By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. Little did he know that God has made clear he's just a tool in the hands of God. 10 verse 5, uh, he says, Assyria is nothing more than the rod of my anger. In verse 15, God says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? No more than an axe, Assyria, to be used today and tossed aside tomorrow. In fact, Assyria soon would feel the axe herself. Verse 33 and 34. 
Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So chapter 10 ends with a picture. Picture of this forest that has been completely chopped down. Stumps. Picture of a, a human ecological disaster. Ray Ortland in his common uh, in his commentary says poetically, at the close of chapter ten, what do we see? The infestation of human pride, like a vast for- forest cut down. God swings his axe, and the whole evil system falls. Bare stumps as far as the eye can see. No branches waving in the wind, no birds flitting around, no life, no movement, no sound. The world is dead. But wait, something new appears. So if you'll remember in chapter 6, that last verse is this picture of Judah, but a, a felled stump. It's all that remains. And yet it ends with this word of hope. The holy seed is the stump. There's this hope in the book of Isaiah of a remnant that remains. And beginning in chapter 11, Isaiah picks up this hope. He looks out over this this carnage, this forest of stumps. And one little stump out there, one little shoot begins to grow. A tiny sprig of green, so small. But it grows and it grows and it grows into a whole new world. That's the picture in Isaiah 11. Our world, like theirs, is broken by sin. And despite what some want to believe, there is no hope for our world in the human political realm. No president, no political party, no ideology can fix the mess that sin has wrought on our world. But that does not mean that there is no hope. One of the benefits of going through the book of Isaiah or pictures in the book of Isaiah leading up to Advent season is that Isaiah draws out our full messianic hope. So we don't hope just in individual salvation. We do see that as glorious. It's a glorious thing that we are made right individually with God, that the sinner can come to the foot of the cross and receive forgiveness and mercy and grace. We do glory in that. But our hope is more. It's bigger. It's more even that one day we would just escape. Escape the pain and the suffering, the injustice that pervades our world. Our messianic hope is that there is a king who is reigning and he will return. And he will establish his kingdom forever. That is our hope. Everything broken by sin and every brokenness that we see will be undone by his perfect justice, peace, and power. As there was a remnant in Isaiah's day, they were looking forward and hoping, and they put their hope in God. So today the church is the remnant clinging to this future hope, waiting for a king. And Isaiah 11 is going to help us hope today. Last week, the invitation was to behold the king in his holiness. Today, the invitation is to hope in his reign. 
Let's read together Isaiah 11 from verse 1 to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike down the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray. Father, as we open up this passage, I pray that you would give us a a small sense of the justice that we will see in Jesus Christ, of the peace that we will have in his presence. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to put our eyes on this King, to see him today, to hope in him today the trust, our trustworthy King. Amen. I believe there are three things in this passage. Uh, We've got three headings today, uh, things that will shape our hope. In verses 1 to the first part of verse 3, we see Jesus, the perfect King, just describes His kingship. In verse 3b to 5, we see this King brings perfect justice. And in verses 6 to 10, we see His perfect peace. Let's look firstly at our perfect king. You know, when um, Saul had chosen the popularity of people over the, the fear of the Lord and over the commands of God, and when he had ultimately been rejected as king, and God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and to, to anoint a new king, Jesse, I mean, Samuel went with the eyes of the world for a time. Now, Saul had been, the Bible describes him as head and shoulders above everyone else, literally, in stature. When you looked at him, you thought king. He was the obvious choice. And so when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, he asks Jesse to see his sons. And Jesse was thinking the same thing along the same lines. He parades seven of his sons before Samuel, starting with Eliab, whom Samuel sees and says, surely this must be the one. Look at his stature and posture. Yet we know God said no. In 1 Samuel um, 16 verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Having chosen none, Samuel says, Are these all your sons? 
And Jesse says, no, I, I do have one more, but he's just a shepherd boy. In the same way, when Jesus was born, he wasn't born into the echelons of society where you would expect a ruler to be born. Kings aren't born in stables. He was born into poverty. No one would have thought this baby to be the ruler of the world, let alone the one for whom all creation was waiting. Ray Ortland said, Our path forward into a bright future does not come from the corridors of human power, not from any breakthrough in any laboratory of science, not from an insight from the lecture halls of philosophy. The only hope of the world was born in a stable in a remote part of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, and almost no one noticed. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. At first, this, this tiny shoot, barely noticeable, one spot of green in a sea of gray, but a life that would grow up into a whole new world. Now, don't you find it interesting that he, he says the shoot is from the, the stump of Jesse? Why not the, the stump of David? When successive kings were um, analyzed, assessed in the books of kings, they were assessed in line with their father, David. No king is called David. No king is called the son of Jesse. That's a title for David alone. Why does Isaiah say, not say from the stump of David? This Messiah to come is not going to be just another king in the line. He is the next David, the greater David. Like no other king, he would be uniquely fit to rule. In verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah uses three couplets here to describe his perfect kingship, his perfect reign, wisdom and understanding for perfection and judicial governing. I don't know if you realize that's the same couplet that the king of Assyria used to describe himself. By my power, I have wisdom and understanding. Counsel and might for war, for none can stand opposed to this king. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. He is the king who cannot err. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be bought. His heart alone is undivided and pure. This king, Isaiah, is contrasting with quivering Ahaz in chapter 7, verse 2. It says, His heart shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind at the prospect of Assyria knocking on the door. Ahaz didn't put his hope in God. His great failing was that his fear was the fear of men. It shaped his heart and his motives. And so over this pawn king of Assyria, we have the greater David with the greatest anointing of the spirit that the world has ever known. His is the wisdom to rule and the might to stand unopposed. In contrast with quivering Ahaz stands the greater David, driven not like mortal men by the fear of men, but his is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In verse 3 it says of Jesus, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
His delight shall be. Jesus lived not just with an understanding of what is pleasing to the Lord. All of his pleasure, literally, this verse is saying, all of his pleasure was aimed at it. Aimed at the fear of the Lord. When we take after the Ahazes of the world, when we're driven by the fear of men, or any misplaced fear, fear of loss or fear of the future, when that's what drives us, it leads to a consuming despair. Jesus lived wholly, reverently towards the Father and towards His will, and the result in Jesus' life was an all-encompassing joy as He followed the Lord's plan. We need to learn to replace our misplaced fears, those fears that lead to despair, with the fear of the Lord. It's the only way to joy in this life. Remember, Israel had forgotten Yahweh in their time of success, when things were going well in the land, when they were winning their battles. In their times of comfort, they forgot the, the Lord their God. And so when trouble came, he, he wasn't real to them. He wasn't a present help. Is He real to you today in the trouble that you are facing today? Does the, the picture that we've read in Isaiah 11, does that mean anything to your heart? Now, is, is Isaiah 11 only about a future hope? Is this just about a, a kingdom that we will one day experience, but for now we go through hardship and toil and trouble and we don't know where to turn? Is that what Isaiah is doing here? Is that what he's saying here? I think to understand um, prophecies like this in chapter 11, it's important that we understand how they work as well. Have you ever heard of the, the term, the prophet's perspective? The prophet's perspective. Um, so in, in uh, prophetic books like this, when they speak of the coming Messiah in the Messianic age, um, there isn't a, a difference given in terms of the timing of the events. So we know that Christ has come and that He will come again. But when Isaiah looks forward to the Messianic age, it's one sort of event, this age. Uh, I've heard this analogy used. If you're looking, standing here, looking off into the distance at a, a mountain range, you see the peaks there, but you can't tell the distance between those peaks. They look like they're on top of one another. But if you drove there, if you eventually got there, you'd see there's, there's great distance between those peaks. So often is biblical prophecy. And Isaiah 11 is a good example. Much of this chapter can only refer to what is to come, to the future, to a new heavens and a new earth. But if you look at verse 2, what is that describing? The Spirit of the Lord resting upon Him. Jesus applied that to His earthly ministry. So don't come to Isaiah chapter 11 and say, yes, one day He will return. One day there will be a kingdom of peace. And one day everything will be okay, but I'm scared today. I need real help today. And I need somewhere to turn. Jesus is king today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And our hope is not just it is, but it's not just in a future kingdom, but also in a present king. We're saying... Mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. He has said he will deliver safely to that golden shore. We have hope for future peace. 
but our hope today is in the Prince of Peace. Is that where your hope rests today? My point is this, you're, you're not alone in the difficulties of life. He is a trustworthy king. And I say this because it, it seems like so many people compartmentalize their faith to the degree where you, you live one way on Sunday, you, you come and you, you sing and you hear the word, but it doesn't have any bearing or impact on your daily life. Or some people say, you know, yes, Jesus is a, he's a nice guy. He's got good things to say, but I'm trying to build a business. I'm trying to live here. You can't build your life on him, on his wisdom and his ways. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is trustworthy today. And eternity will be the proof that there has not been, been a single person who has ever gone out on an, a limb trusting Jesus, putting their hope in Him, denying themselves and being obedient to Him. No one has ever gone out on a limb doing that and come out the loser. We are needy people and He is sufficient for our need. Do you need wisdom and understanding because you're at a loss of what to do? God, I don't know what to do in my situation. Do you need counsel and strength because you know that you're too weak to do what He's asked you to do? Do you need knowledge and the fear of the Lord because you know you can't even trust your own heart and motives? Isaiah's invitation to you today is to stop trusting in yourself, stop putting your hope in other saviors and lift your eyes to this king and put your hope in him. Draw near to Jesus today. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is enough. Number two, we see the perfect justice of his reign in verses 3 to 5. Look from the second half of verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now that is true of humans, of human kings. But Jesus alone rules with an undeceived heart, with unclouded vision. He sees through the things that obscure our vision. That was Ahaz's problem. He couldn't see through his own fear. He couldn't see through the problem. That was the problem of the judges and the rulers of the land. And nothing has changed today. They see, we all see with clouded vision, with false desires and the wrong fears. They did not delight in the fear of the Lord and so injustice pervaded then and it pervades today. These people are little more than objects of gain. How can there be unbiased judgment in that context? Jesus alone is the king who needs nothing. He's completely and forever satisfied. So he alone is the impartial judge, the one unbiased unbribable, incorruptible. He sees everything with piercing truth and with righteousness. 
In the book of Revelation, the apostle John has a vision of this Jesus. And how does he describe him? But with eyes of flaming fire. And this Jesus writes letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. How do those letters begin? With what words? I know, he says. I know, I know your situation. I know the state of your heart, your intentions and your desires. No one is fooling him. I know. There is comfort for us today that the king who makes promises never makes any empty promises, but there must also be warning, should there not? John Oswald said, Here is a king in whose hands the concerns of the weakest will be safe. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, verse 4. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Our world is desperate for justice. When I listen to the, the debates that are going on in the Christian world today, that's all I hear, the word justice. We're scrambling for solutions. The world is scrambling for some way to solve the injustices around us. But for all our talk and for all our theorizing, we have no solutions. There's no plan. What plan is there to end injustice? We can do nothing to solve the problem of the human heart. But He can. And He will. Revelation 19, 15, when He returns from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. Alec Martyr comments here, he says, The king needs no other display of power and no other weapon of enforcement than the bare word that he speaks. When he comes, a word will stop injustice. One word. The world will know perfect justice when he returns. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah is saying righteousness and faithfulness define him. They are his very character. He is righteous and so he will always do what is right. He is faithful and so he will today and every single day be dependable. There is not one moment of his controlling rule that is out of sync with this character of faithfulness and righteousness. And so how do we live as the people of God? We take Him seriously, for starters. Is there a greater motivation to, as, as Mark has said, love kindness, do justice, and walk humbly with your God? So we don't mistreat people. We don't oppress our workers. Furthermore, we are set free by the fact that perfect justice comes in Jesus Christ. Have you ever faced injustice? Have you ever been betrayed? When something like that happens, it, it, it can eat at you, right? As the people of God, we are set free to trust Him, to trust His rule and follow His example. 1 Peter 2.23 says of him, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And why was he reviled? Why did he suffer? We sing a song here. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why would the promise of a king coming in perfect justice be a source of hope for us? Why not a source of terror? It's because Jesus Christ faced the judgment that we deserved to satisfy the just demands of God's righteousness. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. A perfect king bring, brings perfect justice. And finally, number three, he will bring perfect peace. In verses 6 to 10. C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Isaiah looks forward. He sees a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth. He uses language uh, that recalls Eden and paradise restored. In verse 6, we see the reversal of the predator-prey hostilities that, that cover our world. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. So secure is this peace that a little child is able to exercise the dominion that had originally been given to humankind without opposition and without fear. Verse 7, we see Eden restored, a change of nature itself. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And then verse (laughs) 8, in language even more shocking, Isaiah pictures the reversal of the curse. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Is there a stronger picture than the reversal of the curse than that? I can't, I cannot imagining, uh, imagining, I can't imagine a more frightening scene than my 15-month-old Alyssa with her hand inside a cobra's hole or stroking an adder. There's not a more disturbing scene than that. When we moved from Joburg to the jungle down here, <laughs> we tried to put some fear into our children. In the first week of moving into our new home, we, we saw a snake, just by the way. I say to Noah, what do you do if you see a snake? I'll fight it, Dad. No, <laughs> you run. You run and you tell Dad, and Dad will call someone. <laughs> the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. In verse 9, Isaiah summarizes, 
they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Every destructive force will be gone. No one will do harm to another. They will not mar what's good. This is a peace, by the way, that's more secure than Eden. And note this holy hill here in this passage is not restricted in location, in the scope of its location. Alec Mottier comments, he says, it is not that peace is restricted to one place, but rather that a dramatic change has come over the whole earth. When the true order of creation is restored, the whole earth is the Lord's hill, indwelt by His holiness. Peace will pervade. And the reason is given here in verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Can you, can you imagine that? John Piper comments, he says, the spirit of the king the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is so present and powerful that it fills the earth with the knowledge of God and changes everything. Alec Machia, everywhere God is present in holiness and in every place the knowledge of Him is enjoyed to its full extent. The whole earth will be His holy mountain. There is a, a glorious hope that is available today, a perfect peace on offer, and it, it cannot come through our efforts. It cannot come through political agendas. It cannot come through human wisdom. Education is not going to fix our world. Our attempts at creating utopia on earth always fall short. Worse than that, they usually end in war or revolution this peace can only come through Jesus Christ. Ray Ortland commented, he said, It doesn't take long for our human dreams to become our nightmares, but Christ is creating a world. We do not need our utopias. Get me out of those. Our utopias become our hells. We need Christ, and He is coming to create a world without hurt, without destruction, without darkness. No forced laughter, no guilty conscience, no painful regrets, no after effects. The very environment is going to breathe the peace of God and we will never hurt again. How does that peace become ours? That future peace is only available to those who in this life experience peace with God the Father. In verse 10, Isaiah says, In that day, the root of Jesse. What did he say in verse 1? He called him the, the shoot. Verse 1, the shoot of Jesse. In verse 10, he's the root. The king is completely enveloping this metaphor. The metaphor of a stump. He is the shoot of life that, that appears from the stump of Jesse. But he is also the root. So he is the the, the king in the line of David, but he's the source of that kingly line, the origin of the line from which he would be born. Jesus, by the way, applies this prophecy to himself in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22, verse 16, he takes shoot from verse 1 and root from verse 10 and says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, source and offering 
offspring, not offering. He is the offering as well. Beginning and end. Alpha and Omega. We see the bright and morning star when we see him both in his pre-existence and in his incarnation, in his deity and his, his humanity. He must be both. The king must be both or, or else there's no peace for us. Fully God and fully man. In this way, as the perfect mediator between God and man, he makes atonement for our sins. Without this, there is no place for you or place for me in his perfect kingdom. When Isaiah says in verse 10, in that day, I believe he's talking here about this day, the Messianic age, beginning at incarnation and consummated at his return. He says, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. He will be the signal. Another word here is banner. A banner that calls to the world. The world will look to Him. Be drawn to Him. There's a magnetism to Him that draws people to this holy mountain. In the Gospel of John, we, we see Jesus before His arrest in the week leading up to His arrest. He looks forward to the glory that will come, the glory of the cross. And He says in 12 verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Paul saw fulfillment of Isaiah 11 verse 10 in his day through his ministry in Romans 15, 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul saw the beginning of that in his day. The banner that Isaiah is speaking of, the signal for the peoples, is what? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the banner that rules over our lives and stands over our lives and is the guarantee of our hope of a future with Him. Colossians 1 verse 19 to 20. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by His blood of the cross, the blood of His cross. The cross is our banner. It is our plea. It is our only hope. And it is a, our guarantee of God's love for us. And therefore, it is our, our hope of a future with Him. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of Him shall the nations inquire, and His resting place shall be glorious. Literally, his, his home shall be glory. Glory is the word that summarizes our hope. It is the word that summarizes who he is, his person and his character, and it summarizes the very environment in which he is. We sang, and mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. He will never be taken away from me. He is mine forevermore and I will walk with Him one day. And so today in dark days, in times of trial and temptation and days of pain, we can persevere. And church, we must. We must persevere. We must lift our eyes to this banner. We must draw near again in difficult seasons. And this is, look around you. 
This is a difficult season in the life of the church. We cannot back down now. We cannot fall prey to self-centeredness in this season. Now more than ever, where the world is struggling at at a loss to find any hope, we must have hope and it must be catching. We should be doubling our mission efforts. Francis Scott Key wrote the the Star Spangled Banner, the the American national anthem. I don't know if you know this about him, but he was prisoner at one point on a a British warship in the War of 1812. And he had a front row seat as this ship bombarded Fort McHenry through the night, um, bombarded with fire. That's where that line comes from. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Our flag was still there. That is us. The kingdom is going to be established forever, but the king is reigning right now. His banner is over us. The flag is flying and it will not fall. It will not fail. We do face opposition now, but we cling to him and we hope in him and we will persevere. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our king and you are trustworthy. We know that our hearts are so fickle. We fail so often to have a proper fear, fear of the Lord. Our hearts are filled with other fears. And so I just ask, Father, that you'd help us drive this passage home to our hearts today. Help us to lift our eyes to our future, to lift our eyes to our present, the cross of Jesus Christ that stands over our life and declares the love of God for us despite the judgment that we deserved. We are loved by you. Help us to cling to you. Make us strong and courageous and brave. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.